Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you've been with us this summer, you know we're in the midst of a series based on the book of First Peter. Uh, we're in the seventh installment of our True Grace series this summer. And and what we've seen in this book is that the Apostle Peter writes a letter to believers who are scattered about um, what is modern-day Turkey, who were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And he writes to them in this hostile world, and he encourages them that there is grace available to them that would allow them to stand and not wilt, to thrive and not just survive in this hostile territory of this earth. And, and Peter really summarizes his message in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12 when he tells them that everything he's just communicated is the true grace of God that they would stand firm in it. And God has some grace for us today through his word that would encourage us on how we are to live our lives in, in this world. Um, and we're going to see that today as we look at the beginning parts of chapter 4. But before we do that, uh, I want to share with you uh, a little bit um, and what I want to share today with you about is, is my favorite restaurant here in, in Norman, or one of my favorite restaurants. This is a place called Sweet Basil on Main Street. Has anybody ever been there? Uh, they're not paying me. This is not an informational deal. Uh, but but uh, uh, Sweet Basil on Main Street is one of my favorite places. And it's my, one of my favorites because the little Singapore noodles and the pad thai with the egg on top, it's really, really good if you like Thai food. Um, and I do, and so it's, it's a, one of my favorite places to go. But here's something else you need to know about sweet basil. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, sweet basil is right there on Main Street. I've, I've only been there for lunchtime, and if you've been there for lunch, you know that you, you show up, and it's always bright outside the restaurant. The, the windows kind of reflect light, and the sun is shining, and so it's very bright on the outside. And when you walk in, you feel like you've just entered a cave with no lights. I'm totally blind every time I walk into Sweet Basil. There's been a number of occasions where I've gone there to meet a friend for lunch, and I'll walk in the door, and they might be sitting right beside me, and I can't see them at all because my eyes simply have not adjusted. You ever had an experience like that? It might not be Sweet Basil for you. It might be uh, a room in your house or, or someplace that you go where you go from light to dark, and your eyes just don't adjust appropriately, and you're, you're blinded for a short time. You know what I'm talking about? Well, if you know what I'm talking about, then, then you can relate to this fact. Isn't it amazing how quickly our eyes adjust to the darkness? Isn't it amazing how quickly our eyes adjust to the darkness? I mean, I walk in, I'm blinded. I can't see somebody beside me. But you know what? I've never ordered with a mining helmet on in that restaurant. I've never had to take out my phone and shine the flashlight on the back on the menu so that I can see it. I've always been able to see it. And why is that? It's because my eyes adjust very quickly to the darkness. Can you relate to this? I think it's an important point for us to consider today because as we live out our lives in this world, uh, we were very well aware that this world is a dark world, a lot of darkness in this world. And isn't it amazing how quickly we adjust to the darkness? You know, you, you spend some time in God's Word, whether it's on your own or as a part of a worship service, and you study a passage and the, the light is, is shining out at you. You feel like you've got this great truth. You can't wait to put it into practice, to live it out. Your, your heart is inspired. You're blinded by this light. And then you, you walk into the dark world and five minutes later, you've just become accustomed to it. The sin you were inspired to walk away from as you read the Word of God suddenly is 
something that doesn't seem all that important. It's amazing how quickly we adjust to the darkness. You come to a service, you sing songs, and and, and the light of of God and the hope for eternity, it's it's all around you, and you you make decisions about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, and you're all fired up, and you walk out, and maybe one of the things that you were inspired to do was, we're not going to have that conversation together as a family anymore. I'm not going to behave in that way. You no more get to the car. You no more get to the, the edge of Robinson Street, and guess where you are? You're right back in the old pattern. Can anybody relate to this? It's amazing how quickly... We become accustomed to the darkness. When in the midst of the world in which we live, in the midst of this hostile territory, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of a life where people in the first century and people today, it's very easy for us to become accustomed to the sin around us and want to excuse it and, and want to disobey the Lord. In the midst of that world, God gives us some grace in 1 Peter chapter 4 as he calls us to stand firm, to not just give way to the darkness around us and to live the life that he's called us to. My hope and prayer is as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4 today, we'll be encouraged to to live a life of obedience following Christ. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 today. I'm going to read those verses for us, and then we're going to back up and see a couple of things today from these great verses of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says this. Peter writes and says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passion, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, in these 11 verses, we get some encouragement the Lord to us, and we're going to see two different things in these 11 verses today. The first thing we're going to see is a very simple encouragement to us, a simple exhortation to us, and that is that we are to live forward. We are to live forward. We see this demonstrated for us in the first six verses. Now, what do I mean by saying that we are to live forward? Well, the first thing that Peter does as he begins this in, in, in verse 1 is he encourages us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. We're to arm ourselves. Now, 
What does it mean to arm ourselves? This, this word that is translated in 1 Peter 4.1, arm, arm yourself, is, is, this is the only time this word appears in verb form in the New Testament. But this word appears many times in antiquity, and it always refers to a soldier adorning themselves for battle, putting on a helmet, putting on a breastplate, putting on a belt. We, we imagine what a soldier would look like, and, and before a soldier would go to battle, some of, someone who's their superior would encourage them to arm themselves as they go into battle. In the same way, Peter looks at the hostile environment where Christians found themselves in the first century, and he says, if you're going to live out your Christian life, you need to arm yourself with a certain way of thinking. You need to to protect yourself. You need to get ready for battle in, in the Christian life. Because Peter knew what we know, and that is that we are easily accustomed to the darkness. We we have this slide away from God. We we have this temptation to sin. We have a temptation to to cave in or to give up. And Peter says that as we live out our Christian lives, we need to not take a passive attitude, but we need to arm ourselves and be ready for battle. If anybody has ever told you that once you become a Christian, that life suddenly gets easy and suddenly sin has no desire for you, then you have been told a lie. Nowhere in the New Testament does it indicate that in this life, after trusting in Christ, that our desire to sin abates. Matter of fact, as we live out this new life in Christ, we live it out in an old address, and if we are to continue to persist in a life that is honoring to God in this life, then we're going to need to get ready. We're going to need to arm ourselves with something. Well, what is it that we are to arm ourselves with? He says we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Well, what way of thinking is it? It's the way of thinking that Jesus had. Look at how he begins verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, arm yourself with a way of thinking that allowed Jesus to be able to endure suffering when he had done nothing wrong. Now, what does it mean to say that Jesus suffered? I think if you look at the context and take it all the way back to verse 18 of chapter 3 that we saw last week, We see that what is referred to as the suffering of Christ relates to ultimately Jesus' death on the cross where he died the righteous man so that unrighteous people like you and me might be forgiven. The suffering of Christ is referring to his death. It's referring to the death of the righteous one for us. Now, how is it that Jesus could endure the cross? How is it that he could suffer in such a way? Well, it's because he had a, a frame of mind that extended beyond the moment. You see, Jesus, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he prayed that, that God's will would be done. He said, if, if, it's your, if you would allow it, God, let this cup, this suffering that I'm getting ready to endure, let it pass for me, but not my will, but yours be done. He had a a way of thinking, a mindset that said, I'm going to trust God in this life no matter what, even if it looks bad, even if it results in persecution or suffering for me, I'm going to trust God now, believing that, that God will be good on his promises later. And that's in fact what Jesus did as he went to the cross and he died a, a death that was unjust, trumped up charges, the innocent man the perfect man dying on the cross. That that should not have been. But Jesus endured such a thing because he was obedient to God and what God wanted to accomplish through the cross. Believing, Jesus did, 
that God the Father would, would exalt him one day, and that's exactly what happened. At the end of, of chapter 3, he talked about how Jesus was exalted now above all, that every knee would bow before him. That's where Jesus is now. Jesus had a mindset that wasn't focused merely on today. It was focused forward. He was living his life in light of what God would do in eternity, not just what would happen in an afternoon. And because of that, Jesus had a mindset that allowed him to not sin, to not give in, to to follow God and live a life of obedience in this life. In the same way, Christians are called, the end of verse 1 says, to have this same mentality that Jesus had. To not just be focused on today and thinking about what will make my afternoon the best, but to live our lives forward in light of who we are in Christ and where we're headed. Peter ends verse 1 by saying that for whoever has suffered in the flesh, same phrasing before, has ceased from sin. This is what he's saying. If you know Christ, if you have placed your, your faith and your trust in him, then your eternity is secure, and one day you will suffer in the flesh, you will die. And when you die, you will be ushered into an eternity where you will be tempted to sin no longer. Your, your core identity as a believer in Christ, your core citizenship is not in this world, it's in the next, it's in, it's in heaven. It's a heavenly identity. It's a Jesus-marked identity that will not be tempted to sin any longer in eternity. And Jesus said, that's, that's who you are. And so instead of living your life always looking backwards at the things that you've done in the past, live your life instead looking forward, living forward to your identity in eternity, an identity that will be tempted to sin no longer. This understanding is strengthened by what he says then in verse 2. He says, so as to live for the rest of your time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In other words, because of who you're going to be in eternity, because of what God has already done for you in Christ, walk away from disobedience and walk towards him. Live your life not backwards, but forwards in light of whose you are and, and where you will spend forever. We're called to live, live forward. As we live forward, we live a life of obedience to God, arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is what Peter was saying. He said, hey, you guys, you have a past. I know it. I mean, this was a group of Gentile people. They, they weren't born into Christian homes. They became believers in Christ at, at some later point in their life. They, they had a past. They had a history of, of doing things they shouldn't do. And because they had a history of doing things they shouldn't do, they knew where to find the things they shouldn't do. This is what happens when we have a past, right? Those who struggle with alcoholism can tell you everywhere in town that you can get alcohol. Now, You might not know where that is, but they do. Why? Because they have a past. Somebody that has struggled with drug addiction in the past or in the present, they they could tell you everywhere that you can get drugs in this town. Now, you might not know where they are, but they do. So the the temptation is that much more intense. Somebody who struggles with with internet pornography, they they know everywhere that they can find pornography. They know all the sites to visit on. You might not know where those things are, but they do. So their temptation is different. You see, because we have a past, and and 
we all have a past. For some, you, like the recipients of this original letter, didn't know Christ growing up. You, you, you came to know Christ at a later age. You, you have a past. For others of you, maybe you came to know Christ at an early age, but maybe you had a season of time in your life, or maybe you're in it or, or just coming out of it where you didn't care what Jesus thought and you lived a life disobedient to Him. If that's the case, you know where the stuff is. You know where the temptations are. And because of that, we have a a draw, a pull within us to live our lives backwards, to live our lives wanting to to go back to those things that used to make us happy. They always over-promised and under-delivered, but we we still were drawn to them because we have experience there. We have a past there. Peter writes to this group of Gentiles, he says, don't live your life in light of who you used to be, but instead live your life forward in light of where you're going and whose you are. And the same word applies to us today. We are to live our lives not backwards but forwards in light of who we are in Christ. All of us have this temptation to live in the wrong direction. Peter calls us to live our lives forward. Now, I'll give you another example that maybe will help drive that home a little bit. And it has to do with uh, a season of time where people get married. And many times when people get married, they'll have, uh, the guys would have a bachelor party or the, the women would have a, a bachelorette party. And these are, these are great times for friends. A lot of times it's the bridesmaids, the groomsmen getting together with friends to, to kind of celebrate this transition in life. And, and, and those, those are, that, that concept is a great thing. But here's something weird that's happened in our culture. In our culture, that, that event has kind of been hijacked, and, and movies are made about how this bachelor party or bachelorette party is, is an opportunity to, to live as wild and as sensual as possible for, for four or five hours. And here's the thing that has never made sense to me about that. Why would somebody who's committing to live their lives with somebody else spend four or five hours before they get married living backwards? Why would you ever do that? You're professing your, your, your faith and your love and your commitment to, to somebody else. You have a new life to, together. As you prepare in your engagement, you want to live your life forward, not backwards. You want to look forward to married life, not, not live some weird fantasy over here. See, the same basic argument is, is, what, is what Peter gives. We are to live our lives forward following Christ based on our new identity and where we're headed for eternity. Now, he continues this this argument. Um, In verse 4, he says that some will be surprised. Some will be surprised when they, they see you. They'll think you're a little odd when they see your life beginning to change, when you begin to live your life forward. This is what he says. He says, with respect to this, they, being the world, are not are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Warren Wearsby has a quote that I think effectively summarizes this. It says, unsaved people do not understand the radical change that their friends experience when they trust Christ and become children of God. They do not think it strange when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and ruin their lives by running from one sin to another. But let a drunkard become sober or an immoral person pure, and the family thinks that they have lost their mind. It's a funny statement, but it's something that some of you I know can relate to. As you begin to follow Christ, those around you are like, wait a second, you're now living different than us. Why is that? 
We should be prepared for that. When that happens, it happens because instead of living our lives backwards, we're living our lives forwards. Verse 6, he says, for this is why, I'm sorry, verse 5, he says, but, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here's the, the general argument that Peter's making in verses 5 and 6. He's reminding us that one day we'll all stand before God in heaven. One day we'll all have to give an account for our lives. And, and at that point in eternity, obedience is the only form of action that makes sense. Now, in this life, we're able to seemingly get away with a lot, aren't we? So we, we, we do a lot of things, and there's not immediate consequences for those things. Sometimes following Christ leads to mockery or, 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 or difficult consequences or relationships breaking apart or whatever it might be. And because of that, we're tempted at times in this life to, to, to want to hedge our bets a little bit when it comes to spiritual things. But the reality is, if we remember the future, if we remember and we live our lives forward, we're, we're understanding the fact that one day Jesus will stand before him, and at that point, obedience is the only action that matters. As a matter of fact, he, he goes on to, to say that this is the reason why the gospel was preached to those who were dead. Now, that's one of these really weird verses in here, and some people might take that and say, so this means we need to go to funeral homes and and, and preach at funeral homes to dead bodies or go to cemeteries and preach to, to dead bodies because we're supposed to preach to the dead. That's not what this verse means at all. What this verse actually is pointing to is it's pointing to the fact that in the first century, the original recipients of this letter had friends who had heard the gospel while they were alive and then had died. And what Peter was saying was, think of the world through the perspective of those who have trusted in Christ and are now dead and physically and with the Lord spiritually. Doesn't their obedience and faith in Christ make sense now? In some ways, the Christian life makes most sense in death. If we trust Christ for this life alone, then we might be disappointed. But when we trust Christ for eternity, we are never disappointed. What Jesus wants to do for us in eternity far outweighs the things that we get to see him do in our lives today. See, we who will one day see spiritual life in eternity, need to remember what Jesus has done for us. We need to live our lives forward. Now, I want to just make one comment before we move on. That comment is this. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, my hope and prayer is that verses 1 through 6 inspire you to live your lives forward. They remind you of what Jesus has done. They remind you of what he's provided for you in eternity. And, and you no longer see disobedience as something that we should grow accustomed to. But that darkness is something we should walk away from and that we are called to live in the light. And there could be any number of applications for any number of different people. But I, I hope that's, if you know Christ, I hope that's what you take away from this moment. But if you don't know Christ, I want to challenge you with the same principle. I want you, if you don't know Christ, to, to live forward. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I want to challenge you to live your life forward. 
You might think that you have, you know, a year left of your life. You might think that you have 50 years left in your life. If, if medical science goes crazy, you might have 75, 80, 90 years left of life on this planet. But you know what? It's limited, and you don't know when it's going to end. One day, you'll stand before the God of the universe who loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to take all of the penalty that your sins deserve. And when you're standing at that point in eternity, the only response that makes sense today is that you would trust and embrace in Jesus Christ who he is and what he has done for you. See, when we live our lives forward, if we look far enough ahead, it's a motivation for us to repent and trust Christ today. Because there is nothing this world has to offer that is worth risking an eternity away from God. And rejection of Christ leaves that as the only option. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, and God is working within your heart and in your spirit, that today would be the day that you might just simply profess a faith and a trust in Him, that you would receive the work of what Christ has done. You would just, where you sit, you would just pray and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done. I want to follow you with my life. And you can begin that relationship with God today. See, the key for us is we need to live our lives, not backwards, but live our lives forward. Now, as we live our lives forward, verses 7 through 11 give us uh, some, some texture on what living our lives forward in this life looks like, and that is that we're called to love fervently. Love fervently. Now, he, he begins verse 7, and, and he says this in, in, in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Peter, like all of the apostles, had this belief that Jesus could come back at any minute. Christians have em embraced this view for a long time, but today there's even more uh, energy around this idea. You'll see Facebook posts, Twitter posts, articles written, books being published. The end of the world is at hand, and there'll be any number of reasons that will be given. And, and you know what? Many times when we hear that statement that the end of the world is coming, it, it's something that makes us feel a little scared or a little nervous, Make, makes us at times even a little anxious. Well, Peter writes, and he says, hey, if you're living your life forward, that, that knowledge that the world is going to end someday shouldn't, shouldn't make you anxious. It should make you encouraged because that will be the time when all will be made right. And as we live our lives forward, verse 7 tells us that instead of being anxious, we should be self-controlled. We should be sober-minded. We should not allow the, the circumstances of this world or the persecution we face to make us drunk with fear or make our, our minds so full of, of, of information and charts that, that we just can't hardly function in daily life. But knowing that Christ is returning, knowing that one day we'll stand before Him, we should be self-controlled and sober-minded, he says, for the sake of our prayers. You know, one of the things that can hinder our prayers, one of the things that can hinder my prayers is if I, I just spend a lot of time focused on the events of my day. I spend a lot of time thinking about all the decisions I have to make and all the things that I have to do and all the problems that are around me. If I just focus on those things, I just get kind of anxious. It's the opposite of being self-controlled. I, 
I just kind of get out of control in my mind. And when that happens, when I just spend my time looking around, I sometimes begin to, to slow in my prayer. But when we are self-controlled, when we are living forward, when we are sober-minded, we talk to the God who is already there. When we're living our lives forward, it's, it's natural for us to talk to the God who understands the circumstances we're facing, but also understands the future where we will be. Your problems that you face today won't be there in eternity, but Jesus will, so talk to Him today. That seems to be what Peter is saying. For the sake of our prayers, be sober-minded. Then he goes on and he says, as we live out this life of prayer and as we live out this life of self-control, being sober-minded, that we are going to live out a life that is fervently loving others around us. He says, above all, verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Those are two different commands, but they both talk about our our love that we will show for one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things it says is that we will show love that covers over a multitude of sins. This means that we're not going to look for opportunities to champion our brother or sister's sin and, and to, to tell it to everybody else that, that we come into contact with. Like, hi, let me, let me introduce you to my wife and let me tell you her greatest failures. We don't do that. I like, meet, meet, meet my friend Jeff and let me tell you all of the ways that he doesn't honor Jesus. Um, followers of Christ don't do that. Now, we, we don't do it that way, but we're a little more subtle, aren't we? Love covers a multitude of sins. When we live in light of tomorrow where sin will no longer encumber us, then sin no longer defines us even now. Love covers a multitude of sins, and we're to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, that's hard to do, isn't it, without grumbling? Show hospitality? Well, we, we need to do this. So we'll do it. But without grumbling, we show hospitality. We, we share what we have with others around us. We welcome them into our home. Think about the 18 families that hosted counselors from Pine Cove this last week and what a blessing that was. Um, it, was a, it was a demonstration of hospitality. I think this is what Peter is saying in, 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 this, in this passage. He says, hey, when we live our lives forward, we're going to spend an eternity with these folks. We might as well Get used to relating to them as they will be, not as they were, but as they will be. And as we, we spend an, an eternity with these folks, we're going to be sharing everything in the presence of God, so we might as well get some practice sharing what we have now. So we are to cover a multitude of sins, we are to love, and we are to show hospitality to one another. This is part of what marks us as believers as we love each other fervently living forward in the life that God has called us to. I don't know what it looks like for you to live out that kind of a life, but trust me, God has that for you. And the reason why I know that is because if you know Christ, then God has given you a gift to make that possible. Look at what he says in, in verse 10 and 11. He says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here's what Peter was saying. He says that this life of loving others, this life of building up those around you within the body of Christ is something that God has equipped you for. He says He's given you a gift. 
I think this, this idea of a gift that God has given you is consistent with what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, gifts that Jesus has given to the church that equip us to serve one another. God has intentionally made us incomplete as individuals, but complete as a whole so that we would lean into one another, that we would serve one another, that we would care for one another. He's divinely equipped us for that ministry. And he's done it, verse 11 tells us, with both what we say with our words, whoever speaks, let him speak the word of God, share God's truth with others, encourage them in that way. Some of us have been given gifts of of blessing others through what we say and, and others through what we do. He says, if you serve, do so in a way that points to Jesus and honors him. Through our, our, our words and through our works, the two general categories of gifts, God wants us to, to, to work through each other to encourage one another. Now, this is something that we forget sometimes in, in, in church life in America today because we spend a lot of our time together in rows. You know, for, from 9.30 to, to 12 on a Sunday, uh, we line up in rows and look one direction, and there's one person standing up here. Or... In the case of our, our music, there's, there's, there's a few, but, but there's a very small number of people and a lot of people sitting in rows. But the Christian life, as I see it in the New Testament, is not a life that is best spent in, in rows. It's a life that is best lived in circles. It's best spent together. And why do I believe that? Why do we believe that as a church? We believe that because God has not given all the gifts to a couple of people. God has given gifts to everyone. So that as we gather in circles, as we, as we gather together as fellow believers in Christ, God can use you to encourage the person next to you and vice versa. We gather together in, in, in worship and we gather together in our small groups and homes because we believe that circles are, are places where God can use us to encourage those around you. you know, while we're so committed to this idea of, of small groups and when we look at heading into this next year, we, we believe that, that God would want us to start maybe 30 more small groups in this next year because God has just blessed Wildwood with so many great people. And we want to have small groups, not so we can say, hey, we have 30 new small groups. We want to have small groups because they're opportunities for God to use the gift that he has put inside of you in the life of another. Now, certainly there are opportunities to serve within children's ministry, within student ministry, and you guys do an amazing job of all of that. But I believe God wants to use you in the life of other adults, other students sitting, sitting right in your midst, right around you. God wants to use you in their life. And that's why we want to gather not in rows, but in circles. That's what our small group ministry is all about. And I want to just encourage you, if, if you're interested in being a part of that small group initiative, just hearing more about what it is from a leadership level, on August the 2nd, Sunday night, we're going to have something called Operation Small Group. And we'd love to have you come information in your bulletin today. We'd love to have you come and hear more about that because Christian life is a life that is lived in circles. And I believe God wants to work through you to share his varied grace with those around you. Now, as we, as we wrap up here today, I want to just share one last little story. And, and this, this comes from, from last night. Um, you know, sometimes people will wonder, like, well, where do, you, where do you get illustrations for openings and closings? Oftentimes, the illustrations come really late in the game for me, um, and they come just from the life that I'm living. Yesterday was no different. So, so last, last night, uh, we were working around the house. I was doing some dishes and putting up some laundry and that kind of stuff, and 
I had uh, my, my phone in, in, my, in my pocket that was playing some music, and I was walking around, and I was really belting it out. I mean, we were singing some James Taylor, George Strait. I don't even know what all it was, but we were really just enjoying the night. I'm walking around singing. Well, uh, my son and my wife are, are in the other room. Um, and and I, I think you can correct me later if I don't have this exactly right. But, but Josh basically said, I think that daddy ought to be the song leader at the church um, because he sure seems to like to sing a lot. Uh, now, now, here's what I can tell you. Greg, you're, you're, in, no, you're in no danger here. Uh, here. Here's what I can tell you. Um, he was just saying that that was something that I like to do. But you know what? Nobody outside of my family really would affirm that. Um, those that, that, that get to know me better would say that maybe the gifts that God has given me lie in a different area. And you know what? The same is true for you, though. I believe that everybody in this room has gifts, whether they're through our words or through our works. There's gifts that God has given you, um, and he wants to use them in, in, this, in this context. Um, and, and the best way to find that out is, is to ask some people, maybe not your eight-year-old son. Um, they might encourage you in the wrong direction. Um, but, but to ask those around you, how does God tend to use me in your life? It's a great way to start of finding out what are the gifts that God has given you and how does he want to use you. 